The rest of us are going to be in Acts chapter 21, going the second mile, so I invite you to turn in your scriptures to Acts chapter 21. In an article in USA Today entitled Super Spectators, writers were interested to learn what lengths people would go to support their sports team. For example, George Verna of Philadelphia makes a round-trip flight to Seattle eight times every year uh, from Philadelphia. Mike Pratt of Louisville, Kentucky, flies his Cessna to Detroit for every home game to see the Lions play. And as a bonus, when Michigan State plays his alma mater, he flies an extra 45 minutes that weekend uh, each way uh, to see uh, his teams. And then uh, he makes it home for dinner by 7. And trying uh, to get season tickets when he was 11 years old. He waited for eight years. And his dream came true, season tickets to the New York Jets. For each game, Frank flies um, from San Francisco to Boston, where he rents a car and drives three and a half hours to New York City for each home game. Van and Jan Rometta attend every Seattle Seahawks home game by flying 6,000 miles from Washington, D.C. Lou Rossitti leaves his New Jersey home on Friday night to uh, to fly to Dallas to see the Cowboys play for every home game. He also takes Monday as a vacation day. When he started this routine, he was single. And then he got married. So what's the point? Sold-out people will do just about anything for what they value, won't they? Sold-out people will do just about anything for what's important to them. That describes the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He was a man who was sold out. And we know he was sold out to Jesus Christ. But he wasn't a super spectator. He was really a super action figure. Today we see in Paul in Acts 21 going the second mile. Going the second mile was really a a phrase that was coined by Jesus. A lot of people, there are a lot of common phrases that come from the Bible and people use them all the time and they don't have a clue where they come from. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 41, uh, Jesus said this, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And out of that comes the idea of going the second mile. Because in the first century, in uh, the Roman culture, the Roman army could, known country, at least in the Western world, uh, they could enlist people, citizens of that country, to work for them. They could enlist um, someone to carry their luggage or provisions for the army for a mile. And that was standard operating procedure. And Jesus said, if they ask you to go a mile, go too. Go above and beyond. Go the extra length. Show them your servant's heart. In uh, Acts uh, 21, this is Paul on his first uh, missionary journey. And uh, we should have a map, of course. Thank you. And so 
the uh, first missionary journey, and all three of the major missionary journeys in the book of Acts starts in Antioch of Syria, Gentile church, a church with resources to send Paul. And so the, the third journey, uh, the red takes him all the way out into Greece, and then he starts to return in the black, and, you know, we've been in every city so far. And uh, last week, we left Paul at Miletus, kind of go to the center of the screen, and then a little bit to the left and a little bit up, and there's Miletus. And so that's where we left him last week at the end of Acts chapter 20. And uh, in Acts 21, verses 1 through 16, uh, I've entitled it, Running the First Mile. And this is uh, Paul just doing his third missionary journey. He's on mission. He's just doing his job here, that, what he set out to do. We see the travel in uh, verses 1 through 3. And let's just look at that uh, for a minute. I'm going to read it from the scripture. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts writes these words. He says, After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there, after a sight of Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo, finding the disciples there. We stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, but when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. And that's what makes me tired every time I read about Paul and just the travel he endured so he could go somewhere new to share the gospel. And now he's kind of on the return trip, and he's headed toward Jerusalem. Um, he says, after we've torn ourselves away, that refers to the emotional departure of Paul with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Remember, he had this, this team training time with his leaders in Ephesus just before he set that time, gave parting words as a model for all of us who are leaders in the church. And, they, and then they tore themselves away and they left. And uh, let's have that on the map here. So uh, they're in Miletus. They set sail. They come by Kos, one day's journey by ship. Actually, it's a very small ship. Because one day's journey is about all they can handle. And they can't, uh, they can't stay on the, in the sea at night because it's too rough. And they need, they need a smaller boat, and they pull in at night. And then down uh, to Rhodes, and then to a, a day's journey to Patera. And then uh, they head toward Tyre in Syria. And that's going to be a 400-mile trip. And they sail uh, on the south side of Cyprus. How do we know that? I just read in verse 4. And by the way, did you notice that Luke is here? We. How do we know that? He said the we. Every time he says we, he's referring to he is on the team and he is present. At times he's separated from the group, but he is with the group on this occasion. He says we, thought, uh, we, we uh, sought out the disciples there. 
and stayed with them seven days through the Spirit. I'm having a terrible time seeing my notes. Um, and so there's a warning here. We, we saw out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. So they arrive at, uh, at Tyre and uh, they, they find disciples there and they stay with them seven days because they got to unload, they got to unload the ship. The ship they took to Tyre was much larger than the ones they took on the day trips. This one could go 400 miles, could go overnight, no problem. The Holy Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So somehow the Holy Spirit informs the believers in Tyre that but what Paul is going to do and going to Jerusalem is dangerous. And they, they, they are warned and, and they know about this and they, they care about Paul and they don't want Paul to go. They want, they want Paul's safety. They want to protect Paul. They care about Paul. They know what Paul's doing is valuable. And so uh, there's a warning here. They urged Paul not to go. They cared about him. Now, it, it's not that the Holy Spirit said Paul shouldn't go. It's that the Holy Spirit informed them what was going to happen, that it was dangerous, and that they would need prayer. They would need support. Verses 5 through 7, the departure, when it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children. This is an amazing picture. Husbands, and they'd only been wives and children. Come together and kneel together. They'd only been with him seven days. And uh, they're going to kneel together in prayer. It was normal. Like, if you were going to go pray for somebody when they left, it was normal just to stand together in a group. But this is one of those unique times that happened with the Ephesians elders. It was a... An intimate time, uh, a sign of compassion, a concern and love for Paul. And they all knelt to pray uh, for Paul. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and we don't turn home. We continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus. You don't pronounce the P in Ptolemaeus. Where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. So they're going to continue south from Tyre, and they go to Ptolemaeus. We see in the travel, verses 8 and 9, leaving the next day, we reach Caesarea and stayed at the house. We've been at Tyre, and see, it's not traveling far here. They're going south. The goal is Jerusalem. So they're going to take a ship to Ptolemaeus, and um, not very far. And then they're going to take, after they're going to stay at Ptolemaeus, they're going to take a ship to Caesarea, named after Caesar Augustus. This is a Roman city in Israel. And there's a Roman fortress there. And uh, this is a very strong, uh, the Romans built the city, and this is, a, this is where really the Roman palace is. Whenever the Romans come, this is their headquarters. Um, so uh, they arrive at Caesarea, and they stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Who's Philip? Acts chapter 6. He was one of the seven deacons, or the seven leaders filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, appointed to wait on the tables. He was a 
supreme servant, but he was also an evangelist. In Acts chapter 8, he went to Samaria, shared the gospel, ran into Simon the sorcerer. We had a we 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 spent quite a bit of time talking about Simon, and then he uh, shared Christ with the Ethiopian eunuch and led him to faith. He's a very significant leader, and then he just kind of disappears. And we know that he was in Caesarea, but this is 20 years later after Acts 8. And he, he's, he, he lives there, and he has a house there, and he has uh, four unmarried daughters who prophesied. They had the gift of prophecy. Uh, we, we, we don't really see them in the future, but uh, one of the things we know is that men and women both had the gift of prophecy. It wasn't a male gift. A spirit, this is a spiritual gift. Uh, what we do know, at least through, we don't know from Scripture, but we know from history, at least from Eusebius, the historian of the church, that these four uh, young, by Luke mentions them, they're known later in the first century. And they provide quite a bit of historical data um, to the, the young church in the first century. So they're, they're resources. Maybe even Luke later would use them as resources as he gathered information to write the book of Acts. Verses 10 and 11, we have a warning. After we had been there, after we had been in Caesarea a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Who's Agabus? We met him in Acts chapter 11. He is a New Testament prophet. And he prophesied in Acts chapter 11 about the severe famine in Judea in those days. Verse 11, coming over, to, and he's from Jerusalem, he's from Judea, and, and he's from the city of Jerusalem, uh, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt, which belt, heavy cloth sash around Paul's waist. He took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt, that'd be you, Paul, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And so just like an Old Testament prophet, an Old Testament prophet often pictured his prophecy, often uh, did something visual so that everybody could see it. Jeremiah did it. Isaiah did it. And now Agabus does it for Paul. There's a picture. Paul is going to be taken prisoner in Jerusalem. That's a prophecy. The plea, verse 12, when we heard this, Luke says, and Luke is here, we, including Luke and the people there, pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, this is dangerous. You're going to be in prison. You could die. Don't do this, Paul. And Paul and his followers, Spirit didn't say, Paul, don't go. Holy Spirit warned Paul and his followers of the danger that was coming. Paul is more concerned about being obedient than he is safe. If that's the only thing you hear, that might be worth your being here today. Following Jesus is more important than being safe, more important than being comfortable. In Acts chapter 9, verse 16, Jesus communicated with Paul that he would suffer in taking the gospel to the Gentiles and that Paul would appear 
before kings. Verses 13 through 16, we see the resolve of the Apostle Paul. Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? So Paul was moved deeply by their, and these people care about him, and he cares about them, and uh, he's moved. But he said, I am ready not only to be bound, they want to tie me up, they want to chain me, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. As far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, he was a living sacrifice. Whatever Jesus wanted, that was okay with him. Verse 14, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up, Luke says. We get, he's hardened up to crack. We gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. And they just submitted him to whatever God wanted. They submitted him to the Lordship of Christ. And after this, verse 15, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. There it is again. They're going down to Jerusalem, but up to Jerusalem. How can that be? They go, they're going south to Jerusalem. It's down on the map, but it's up. Why? Because it's a higher elevation. It has the temple. It's always spoken of as higher than the locations around it. But they're going to travel 65 miles from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and it's going to be an uphill. And they're not going to do that by ship. After this, we started on our, our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason. Don't pronounce the M. Where we were to stay, he was a man from Cyprus, one of the early disciples. Early disciples. Acts chapter 2, when the church got started. Or, or somewhere early by Acts 4, we meet Barnabas from Cyprus. Nason is from Cyprus, and he's one of the early disciples. And he has a home in Jerusalem. And that's where Paul's going to stay. Paul is traveling with a team of leaders from various churches that he has visited on his third missionary trip. And they're, as we understand the New Testament, they're likely carrying significant fine to help the churches from their churches to go with Paul to help the church in Jerusalem. And so these are Gentile leaders. They're going to go to stay with Nason because he's a Gentile. Because probably some of the Jewish Christians would be uncomfortable with the Gentile Christians. Um, and you're going to see that, see that in just a minute. So they, they were on their way up to Jerusalem. They were going to stay at Nason's home. And uh, we, we are reminded of uh, why, why Paul had such resolve to go. You know, like, I'm starting to get the message that maybe this is going to be unsafe. Maybe we shouldn't go. You know, would, would you be tempted to think maybe we shouldn't go? When you got this strong a warning about going to Jerusalem over and over. After all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. So somehow he has decided he's going to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. But he decided this early in the third missionary journey. This is, you know, before he went down to Greece and back up and got on the ship. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So 
So in his mind, he's going to go to Jerusalem. It's going to be hard, but he's going to go to Jerusalem, whatever happens there. And then my plans are, God willing, to go to Rome. Acts 20, verses 22 and 23, the chapter right before. This is from last week. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. He's being guided by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he has serious resolve to do so. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Holy Spirit didn't say, don't go. Holy Spirit said, it's going to be tough. That's the first mile. And he's finishing the third missionary trip. He's just doing his job. Now he's got to go the second mile. Running the second mile, verses 17 through 26, we see the reception in Jerusalem. And uh, so we can see that on the map. We got a map here? Yeah. So Tyre, Ptolemaeus, Caesarea, another 65-mile walk to Jerusalem. Okay? Now they're in Jerusalem. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. That's good. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. Who's James? Well, this is the Apostle James. This is not James, one of the disciples. This is James, the Lord's brother, who probably became a follower of Christ after the resurrection, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And James is now a pillar of the church. He's like lead elder, lead pastor, is the mother church. So Paul sees um, James and the elders in Jerusalem. Paul greeted them, verse 19, and reported in detail what God had done, um, done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That's all good. This is what God has done. The grace of God, the gospel has gone forward. And he mentioned city after city after city and the number of people that have come to faith. And it wasn't all easy, was it? Remember the riot in Ephesus? And now the problem, verses 20 through 21. When they heard this, they praised God. That's good. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Paul, you've been out there in, in the gent, Gentile lands sharing the gospel, and you've had great success. There's been some success in reaching people here in Jerusalem as well. Thousands of Jewish people have come to faith in Jesus Christ. All over the Roman Empire, by the way, they don't just live in Jerusalem. They come to worship in Jerusalem and they learn about the Messiah. Many, many have believed. Verse 21, they have been informed, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. See, there, this, isn't, this has nothing to do with what Paul did. It's what people thought about Paul. They were misinformed about Paul's ministry. So these are good people. These are Christians. And Paul's a Christian. And Paul's been walking with God and doing good things. And they've been misinformed. And there's a huge distrust for Paul and his ministry and the, these new Jewish Christians believe that Paul is going around telling people in the, in the Roman world 
to the law. Don't circumcise your... Turn away from Moses. Don't... Children. Paul, Paul, they accuse Paul of just ignoring what the Old Testament scriptures taught to the Jewish people. None of it true. And so, uh, here's the plan. This is a little more difficult for Paul. What shall we do, James says? They will certainly hear that you have come. So, do what we tell you. Um, James has a plan. He's got an idea on how he can bring um, some wisdom and some peace into this situation. So he says, there are four men with us who have taken a vow. These are Jewish men. They are Jewish. A Nazarite vow. By the way, Christianity isn't against Nazarite vows. And uh, to do so, they must make some sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, these are Jewish men. And James says, take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses. They're probably poor Christian men. And uh, the sacrifices to fulfill their vows, the Nazarite vow, which is going to require uh, cutting their hair and uh, making uh, some kind of uh, probably animal sacrifice. And uh, it's going to be kind of an expensive uh, item for poor people so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. So Paul is a Pharisee. He's a Jewish man, and he's a believer. And he's been proclaiming the gospel for it's by the world saved through faith. It's not about doing good works. It's about keeping the law. And that's been Paul's message. However, a Nazarite vow is not about being saved. It's about, it's a Jewish um, custom, a Jewish, that's in the Jewish law. And it's about making a promise to God. And this is how they did it. So Paul is not being asked to change his view of the gospel. Paul is being asked to kind of go go the second mile, go above and beyond and support your brothers here. And if you do, you're going to set a good example for all the Jewish Christians that you are not against the law. You're showing that you're supporting the Old Testament. And that's what Paul is going to do. See, Paul has done nothing wrong, and Paul is going to do nothing wrong. Believers, and there are no requirements about uh, Nazarite vows. We do have wedding vows, any vow is important. They're not in the Bible, but they're as important as any vow before God. Um. So the solution, verse 26, the next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. So Paul's going to follow through. And he needed to purify himself according to the law because he's been out of the country. He's been in Gentile, Gentile lands and he's coming back to Jerusalem. And for, for him to go into the temple, he must go through a seven-day purification process. And that's what he's going to do. 
He went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Now there's going to be five because there's going to be an offering for him and for others. Paul is not changing his view about the gospel or the Christi- Christianity in any way. And he's never tried to put Gentiles under the law. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, Paul says this, To the Jew I became like a Jew to win the Jews. He, that was his, he knew how to live as a Jewish person. And he knew uh, he was comfortable doing these things. This didn't violate Scripture in any way. It didn't violate his conscience. And he had the opportunity. He could have rejected not doing the purification rites and paying the offering. He could have rejected that, and he would have done nothing wrong. And he can follow through with this and do it and serve God in this way, and he does nothing wrong. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. He wanted people to know he wasn't against the Jewish people, but he had found the one that fulfilled. And then uh, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 23, he says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. He is willing to go the second mile. However, the third mile gets worse, running the gauntlet. We don't call it running this the third mile. Verses 27 through 40, the accusations. So things are going to get worse. He's just made this huge sacrifice. He's come back. He's probably totally exhausted. He engages in this opportunity. He goes to the temple. He begins this, the seven days of purification. And now the accusation, verse 27 through 29. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple. Man, what's this all about? Well, these are Jews. They are not Christians. They are Jews from Asia. Pretty clear they're probably from Ephesus, and they were in the riot at Ephesus. And we're going to know that in just a minute. They saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the crowd, and they grabbed Paul, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. That they were saying Paul's against the Jewish people, saying Paul's against the Jewish law, saying Paul's against the temple. And that made people nervous in Jerusalem at the temple, because that's where he is when this happens. And besides... Just throw this in, by the way. He has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. Who would do that? What could be worse than Paul bringing one of his Gentile friends into the temple? And by the way, in the first century, in the temple, there was an inscription on the walls. There was a place called the outer courts that Gentiles then there was a building. They were not allowed to go beyond the outer courts. There were inner courts. Then there was a building that only the priests could go to to be involved in worship. And then at the outer courts, the Gentiles could be there, but they could go there and only that far. And then there was inscriptions on the wall that said to the Gentiles, if you go beyond this barrier, 
This is not a quote. This is a paraphrase. You will die. You will be put to death. This was so important to the Jewish people. This is such a big deal that the Romans back this. There is one occasion where the Romans would allow the Jewish people to take care of justice on their own without their approval, and that's if a Gentile violated the temple. They had permission to put that Gentile to death without a trial. That's how significant this was. And so they just make this accusation that Paul had brought one of his friends, a Gentile, into the temple. Verse 29, they'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, make this assumption and assume that Paul had brought him into the temple. They just make this assumption, false assumption. We've seen Paul earlier. He's with Trophimus. Paul was in the temple. Paul brought his friends. How do we know these, these how do these Jewish people recognize Trophimus? Because they were at Ephesus, and that's where he's from. That's where they saw him. Now he's in Jerusalem. They recognize him. But it's a false assumption. The uproar, verses 30 through 32, the whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. This is worse than Ephesus. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. Temple guards took care of the gates. Riot happens. Close the gates. Nobody comes in. We've got to protect the temple. They dragged Paul out of the temple, take him out into the, uh, toward the streets, and the whole city gets desecrated, the temple. This is a huge deal. Chaos. Verse 31. When they were trying to kill him, they, they, this is no doubt it's what this was about. When they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. On the northwest wing of the temple was the fortress of Antonia. And that's where the Romans had an outpost attached to the temple, really, to, to guard the temple. To, that's where unruly things happened. And uh, they, wanted to be, they, they had a good relationship with uh, the Sadducees and the, and the Sanhedrin. But... They were enforcers. And so there was a riot that broke out, and they're on the scene. Um, there's a thousand, this had a thousand troops, Roman troops. Verse 32, he at once took some officers. They were centurions. They had troops of 100. And so there's at least two because it's plural, and that means there were at least 200 soldiers. And they ran down, uh, they ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Poor Paul. They're trying to beat him to death. They just take a break. Stop beating him to death. And so he's going to get a breather for a second here. Uh, fortunately, with the presence of the Roman soldiers, they stopped. And, you know, what you find here is, once again, Paul is saved by the government. He's literally saved. He was saved in Ephesus by the government. He's saved here by the government. And Rome was a cruel government at times. But they were about law and order, and there was great protection in the gospel all over the Roman Empire because of Romans. The arrest, verses 33 through 36, 
And the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains to two soldiers. Then questions later. Verse 34. Some, a true had shouted one thing, some another. This is chaos. And since the commander uh, could not get a truth because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be taken to the barracks. And so this is a smart guy. He knows we've got to get the guy out of here. This is, we're just going to remove him. We're not going to try to argue with people or explain people or show how much power we have. We're going to get him out of here. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, it just keeps getting worse. He had to be carried by the soldiers. They had to lift him up and actually move him away from the crowd because they kept beating him as they, was, they were walking along. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. This is Jerusalem. This is the city that said crucify him 30 years earlier. And Paul's getting the same treatment. Clarification, verses 37 through 40. As the soldiers were about to reply, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness some time ago? See, the, the commander who's called onto the scene in the midst of a riot, he, he, doesn't, have, he, he doesn't know who Paul is, but he, he makes an assumption this is probably the Egyptian that caused so much trouble earlier. And so now we've got him, and now he's going to face justice. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. So Paul explains he's not the Egyptian. He is a Jew. He doesn't say he's a Christian. He says he's a Jew. He's from Tarsus. That's not an insignificant city. He's proud. He's a citizen of Tarsus. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic. So now Paul's going to blow them away because he's going to speak their language. He's going he's to speak in Aramaic. That would be the spoken Jewish language of the day, of Jesus' day. And they're going to hear. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to hear Paul's defense next week. What he had to say. Okay, some lessons. Sometimes following Christ takes us beyond our comfort level. Not hard lesson to see, is it? He was, Paul was headed to Jerusalem. He was taking a huge financial gift collected from various churches. He was warned about the danger of going to Jerusalem. Yet, he went. He went beyond his comfort. Does following Christ for you take you beyond your comfort level? Secondly, sometimes following Christ goes against conventional wisdom. You know, Paul had good people advise him not to go to Jerusalem. Good people advising Paul not to go. Sometimes following Christ goes against conventional wisdom. This is classic when young adults sense God wants them to go and do something that makes their parents uncomfortable. Whether it's going to the mission field, whatever it is. It's not always safe. It's not always convenient. And it even can go against what seems like conventional wisdom. Thirdly, sometimes following Christ requires going the extra mile. 
you know, getting to Jerusalem, finishing his third missionary journey was a huge accomplishment. But as soon as he got there, Paul was strapped with a new obligation to go beyond what was required of him for the sake of for the sake of Jew, for, for Paul being for the Jewish people, as well as the Gentile people, showing how love and sacrifice for the body of Christ uh, is a powerful witness. Fourthly, full devotion to Christ includes presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Paul understood what it meant to be a living sacrifice. He was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. He was willing to die for Christ rather than uh, seek safety or to seek comfort. Romans 12.1 reminds us of this. Uh, we looked at Romans 12.1. I talked about this last week. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We talk about worship a lot. Worship is really important to many of us. And Paul says, this is reasonable and logical. Jesus gave himself for you. He laid down his life for you. He died for you. Back to him. Comfort response back to Jesus Christ is to offer your body back to him. In exchange, you do it willingly. It's your choice. It's been said in the the. A sacrifice is a picture in the Old Testament of putting an animal, a dead animal, on the altar and, and presenting it to God and uh, being consumed by fire. The difference is you're not dead. You're living. And you can offer yourself to God while you're alive. The bridge, we say our, our mission is to help people connect with God and then to develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. When we're successful, people are becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. The Apostle Paul was a fully devoted follower of Christ. How are you doing in your pursuit of full devotion to Christ? Scale up here, 0 to 10. On the scale up here, 0 to 10. If 0 means nothing, no relationship with God, and 10 means full devotion to Christ, where would you put your mark on the line? How are you doing? Where is your devotion to Christ? And then the next question is, after you put your mark, maybe it's, a, maybe it's an 8. How do you get to a 9? What, what can you do to get to a 9? Maybe you put 3. What can you do to get to a four? We started with sold out people will do almost anything for what they value. It's true. Let's stand. Thank you, Father. Uh, for to the Apostle Paul and his example to us. And it's an amazing example of his love and commitment. We're reminded in the scriptures that the greatest commandment 
Jesus identified is to love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. God, help us to be people who love you. And show it for Jesus' sake.